But it's because I was in school and I thought, oh, I'll read this book for fun. There's no fun, Anne, when you're in school. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 178. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I have exciting news for you. A couple of weeks ago, we hinted at an announcement. And if you visited our Patreon page at patreon.com slash what should I read next and watched the video, you heard me explain that a new project was in the works. And now that project is finally here. We just launched another bookish podcast on Friday, and it's very different from what should I read next. What Should I Read Next is about helping my readers find their next read. In each episode, the recommendations are geared toward a particular reader's style, and I'm always looking for titles they haven't read before. Our new podcast is a short format show, and it's called One Great Book. In every episode, I'll pull one standout selection off my personal bookshelves and tell you all about it. I'm highlighting books I love that you may have missed or forgotten about, but that you'll be glad to discover, whether that's again or for the first time. We have eight books planned for this first volume, commonly known as a season on podcasts that are not of the bookish variety, and the first two books are available now. New episodes drop on Fridays beginning this week. And as a fun bonus for our Patreon backers, I'll be recording bonus episodes for patrons that correspond with new episodes of One Great Book. On One Great Book, I'm focusing on books that have been out in the world for at least a year, but in those bonus episodes for patrons, I'll be telling you about a great book that hasn't been published yet, so you can be in the know and be the first on your library holds list. If you're interested in hearing those episodes, go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what should I read next, and please find One Great Book in your podcast player and hit subscribe. Readers, decision-making is a huge part of what we do here on What Should I Read Next and a personal interest of mine. Today's guest, Emily P. Freeman, is a podcaster, author, and an expert in the art of decision-making. She has literally written the book on it, and it is out today. But when assigned school reading hijacked all Emily's personal reading time, deciding what to read next for pleasure got a little more complicated. That's where I come in. Today, I'm helping Emily find her way back to confidently making reading decisions for herself. Plus, we're discussing what to do when you pick up the totally wrong book by a totally great author, biographical historical fiction, the first YA book ever written, and Emily's home-based genre, spiritual memoir. Let's get to it. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anne. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I've been wanting to talk to you about your reading life on the public record because we do talk about books on a fairly regular basis. And I'm so excited to finally be doing it on What Should I Read Next? So thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm thrilled. I I can't wait. All right. Well, this is a big day for you. (laughs) This is a big day for me. (laughs) (laughs) How long has it been since you had a book come out? Oh, okay. So it was the fall of 2015, 16, 17, 18. Yeah. So it's been four years. Does it make you feel really old? It makes me feel old. And we're about the same age to think like, oh, four years, it's nothing. It just goes by in the blink of an eye. Yeah, it totally makes me feel old. But here we are. So you're coming out of a busy season and you have a book coming out in the midst of it. What has this book writing, grad school, what else have you had going on? Because that doesn't seem like enough. That's just two things, Emily. It's only two things, right? I feel like the older our kids get, in some ways the easier it gets, but in so many ways the busier it gets because 
They all have things and they're at that age where they have a lot more things than they did when they were little, but they can't drive yet. All together, we have three kids, two twins who are 15, and then our son is almost 13. And so though they don't have, you know, a million different activities each, even just one thing per kid is three things a week, you know? So I have found that to take (laughs) up a lot of time, as you can imagine. Yes, I know. And I can't imagine. You've had these big life projects that have revolved around books and reading. And yet, what have those big projects done to your personal reading life? For the past two years or year and a half, I've been in grad school. So all my books that I'm reading are, we have had to read one fiction book, I will say, for school. What was that? It was um, a Susan Howitch. Really? Glittering image. Yes. All right. Hold on. We're going to do this right now. Something I wanted to talk to you about today was you are one of the only people I know who shares my weird love slash fascination with her Starbridge series. Yes. It's so good. Tell me about the series in your own words. Her series, if it were made into movies, which I don't know that it has been, would not be featured on Hallmark Channel. Probably not even on like mainstream TV. It would, it might have to be an HBO show (laughs) because it's this very awesome, weird mix of spiritual formation and sexual exploration, (laughs) but not in like a kinky way, but just like in the full formed experience of people and humans. But it's such, it's such an unexpected brilliance that she has just the way that she writes about the spiritual life, but also the struggles that sort of happen underneath. It's fascinating and unexpected, but so good and so well-written. And we had to read, I guess it was the first one of the series for a class. And one of our professors was like, just so you know, you know, and it's not like, I mean, Anne, come on, you know, it's not like, it's like PG-13. Let's say that, right? Do you think it's our? Uh, You know, it depends on if this is HBO or stars. (laughs) Right. I think they could give it the full stars treatment. But when you pick it up, it's described as a series about the Church of England and the clergy in it. And you think, oh, I could totally read this out loud to my grandmother and not be uncomfortable. But you totally couldn't. Right. Not the whole book. There are just parts. There are many more steamy scenes, a lot more addiction, you know, a lot more human frailty in the this is real life sense than I expected about what what is it? This point, the early books are almost period pieces now looking back. And then Mm -hmm. as I remember, the newer books are more contemporary. I mean, she's been done writing the series for many years. So the newer books are set in the 80s, not just the 50s or 60s. Well, and I haven't finished the series. Those second two books are very different. Is that right? I mean, similar approach, but it's in a different era and they read very differently because of it. Oh, I can't wait. I look forward to that. You've probably been putting these off for many years though at this point, because this has been your long detour through the academic life. Yeah, it was years ago. So so for the past year and a half, I've been reading all nonfiction, some like almost textbooky type, many books I would pick up. Like I just finished Mike Cosper's Recapturing the Wonder, which is a type of book I would read on my own, a really lovely book about sort of how we have become disenchanted with life and faith and sort of reintroducing that into our daily life. But there are other books like Christ in the Missional Church, like books that, you know, are a little more, I have to set a timer and make myself read it. Really good information, but, but probably not something I would pick up just for kicks, you know. But that's been my last year and a half. And so I've been slowly making a list of 
books that I can't wait to read once school's over. How long's that list? Well, some of the list is in in my head. Right now, I have, I don't know, maybe 40 books on my want to read list. Are you a list keeper in general? I mean, have you been keeping a TBR list for many years and these are 40 priority reads? Or do you have a TBR list that is only 40 titles? That's a great question. I am a list maker, so I make lists about everything. Mainly, I make lists with books that I have read already. I years ago had like all the books that I've read, partial or not, you know, throughout the, because basically I want to see what books are influencing me right now, what books are talking to each other. And a book can influence me if I've only read three chapters of it, you know, but then I thought, well, I'd like to see like, what have I finished? And that list is, I, I don't read very fast. And so my list is fairly short every year. Like when I look back at the end of the year, which I'm fine with. But because of school, Mm -hmm. a lot of times we're assigned books to read, but we're not assigned the entire book. We're just assigned a portion. But I wanted to remember like, oh, that book, I really loved that book and maybe I'd like to go back to it. So I have started now keeping a list of already reads and then a list of partial reads for 2019. What are your highest priority reads? Do you have any books that you've just been burning to get to? Well, I'll tell you, I started the Louise Penny series, Inspector Gamache. But I've only gotten through the first two books. And then I checked out the third book at the library and renewed and renewed. And then finally, like I couldn't renew it anymore. I had to turn it in without reading it. And it was like a really sad day in my life. But it's because I was in school and I thought, oh, I'll read this book for fun. There's no fun, Anne, when you're in school. There's just no fun (laughs) reading. (laughs) There's only reading for a grade. That is my life. So I look forward to getting back to like Cozy Murder book. You know, it's funny is a lot of readers are like, I love that too, Emily. Cozy Murder. I am all about it. (laughs) I'm not all about the scary murder I'm learning, just the cozy. Tell me more about reading for a grade. What is it about reading on assignments that alters the reading experience, even of a book that you might pick up on your own, but if you didn't, you read it differently? Like something that I really have to combat against in my own reading life, any reading I do could be legitimately construed as work. But reading like it's work is a terrible mindset as a reader. I mean, it can be interesting and it can be enjoyable, but it still exists in a different brain space. It does. And I want to have part of my brain as a reader be a place that can just relax into. And when you're reading for a grade, there's no relaxing. It's tricky. When I applied to go into this program for school, one of the things that I talked myself into it, because I saw the syllabus ahead of time, not all the books on the reading list, but I knew generally what the books would be. I remember thinking like, oh, so many of these books I want to read anyway. They're on my to-be-read list. So I thought, oh, this is great. It'll force me to read books I want to read. It's going to feel like my real life. you know. I, but let me tell you, you're exactly right. As soon as it becomes assigned, it's like my inner 10th grader rebels, like, wait, I don't, what do you mean I have to read this book? You know, it kind of changes the experience a little bit. And what I've discovered was it forces me to read at a pace that I'm not as comfortable with because you have to read it by a certain time. Because if you don't, then you can't write the paper or you got to move on and it's going to pile up into the next week's work. And so it wasn't as much about like the fact that I had to read it as it was that it forced me to read more quickly and to process. And that took a few months to get used to is that I haven't been a student in many years and reading like a student is different because you know you're going to have to retain it and then be able to reflect upon it with some sense of, you know, 
smarts <laughs> so that it makes sense and draw connection. And that's the other thing is, especially some professors are more about this than others, but drawing connections between lecture and this other reading and this, this article we read and then this book and how it all weaves together commonalities and comparing and contrasting. And I mean, I've learned a lot. It forces you to learn, but it's also work. And so it, I have to take notes differently. I have to it's just a different posture when you're reading on assignment. Right. And you mentioned that you like to pay attention and see how the books you're reading are talking to each other. Obviously, any good curriculum is designed with exactly that talking to each other in mind. But how is that different from the connections you see b- between the books that you pick up on your own for your own purposes? I think it has to do with the time frame for me personally. Because I'm a slow reader, like when I'm not a student, when I'm just reading as a human person, I think that I'm able to let those books, like if I'm, like a lot of times I'll read nonfiction in the morning. And then if I'm in a season of life where I'm reading fiction, I'm not always, but if I am in that season, then sometimes those will talk to each other, but it takes maybe weeks and weeks for me to realize, or I'll have a thought and I'll be able to reflect on it and I'll write a blog post or I'll find something to reflect on in the podcast or whatever. Whereas reading to make connections with school or on assignment, I have to figure out how these books or how these readings are talking to each other in five days time. My brain doesn't always work that quickly. And so it is becoming quicker. It's definitely a learned skill as far as making connections quickly and then drawing conclusions or even just having some reflections that coincide Mm -hmm. and make sense. It's a timing thing for me. It's just the pace is not preferred. But one thing I have learned is, Emily, you could work more quickly than you realize. I think I tend to like kick rocks and dawdle sometimes. And being a student has helped me pick up the pace a little bit. And I think that's been good for me. Interesting. Now, I really identify with what you said about being a slow processor. I feel like I need to put the things in my brain and just let them sit for a bit. But I didn't know that you identified as a slow reader. I do. I read a lot, I feel like, but I'm not completing books at the pace that a lot of people seem to. And so in my mind, that equates, well, I must just be a slow reader because I can't plow through things at the pace that it seems like grown humans are able to do. (laughs) I don't know. I will say, we have one professor, this last class I was in, it was brilliant. He gave us uh, our reading assignments, which was a lot of reading. And then he would give an estimated time frame that he thought it would take. And I found that it took about maybe about what he said or a little bit longer. And he identifies himself as a slow reader. And so I thought, okay, well, he says he's slow and I'm reading about the pace he is or a little bit longer to finish than what he estimated. And so I figure, well, if he says he's a slow reader and I'm even slower than that, maybe I am a slow reader. However, my husband, John, thinks I'm a really fast reader. So I don't know what this means, Anne. (laughs) I think it means that whatever you're doing, it is okay. It's okay. (laughs) Emily, our listeners love behind the scenes, or at least that's just something I want to tell you because I love the behind the scenes process of the writing life. So you're working through the idea for your next book, the one that came after Simply Tuesday. What happened next? So after Simply Tuesday released, I mean, that book came out in 2015 and it was the last of four that had come out since 2011. So I had a 2011 release, 2012, 2013, three books, one per year, and then a year in between and then a 2015 release. And you know, I just have to say, if you're not the one writing the books, it doesn't sound like, (laughs) it's like having babies. Like my brother and I are two and a half years apart. And it didn't sound that close together when I was growing up. I was, you right. know, two and a half years. It's, that was three grades in school. And then I started having babies. And wow, two and a half years apart seems a lot closer than it ever did, like when I was eight years old. 
Yeah, my second book was due the day my first book released. Like you said, when you're first starting out, you think this must be how it's done. This must be normal. Now I look back and I think I needed a mentor (laughs) to tell me not to do that. (laughs) A sanity check because that was, as you know, a really difficult thing. But at the time, I just thought, well, this is the job. This is how it's done. And that is how it's done for some people. And some people have no problem with it. And it works beautifully. I did that, but it was difficult. And in 2015, when my fourth book came out, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to have some time of not writing books. I kept working. I was still doing writing and I was still speaking some and things, but I did not have a book contract. And so it was a few years later when I began to have this idea for what I thought would be my next book. It was a book on decision-making. I noticed how I experienced life as I had a decision to make and how it sort of fine-tuned all my senses. It's like, I was a better listener. I was a better seer. I was making more connections because I was trying to find answers or clues to help me make a decision in a better way. And I started realizing that this decision-making process, is not just about the decision, but it's also about how you make the decision. And so I started taking notes thinking, Anne, like, okay, this is my next book. And I even talked with my editor who had edited the other books I had written about it a little bit. And like, you know, she's like, do you have any other book ideas? You know, asking. And I remember telling her like, oh yeah, this, but it's not really fully formed and decision-making and how it kind of has us pay attention to God and each other. And, you know, we become these people who are really aware of, you know, what might come next. She's like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm, like (laughs) semi-interested because she liked me, but I could tell it it wasn't quite there yet. I remember having on my calendar, like, I'm going to outline this because this is my next book, like this is. And I tried to wrestle that thing to the ground and it would not emerge the way that my other books had emerged. Usually like when I finally give an idea my full attention and turn toward it fully, it blossoms and it begins to talk to me. And it has, you know, my job is to pay attention and then the work, the job of the work and the writing, it starts to dance a little bit in front of me. This one was not doing that. It was flat, it was lifeless, it was going nowhere. And it was endlessly frustrating to the point where I just thought, well, I guess I'm done writing books. I guess I've just forgotten how to write. I'm gonna have to find something else to do with my life. (laughs) But as it turned out, this idea started to come. I started to realize maybe I'm forcing it into a medium that it doesn't want to be in. And long story short, it ended up becoming a podcast instead of a book. So that's how the Next Right Thing podcast started was because I thought I had a book on decision-making when in fact it didn't have a narrative arc like a book. It more had shorter, almost like tiny chapters, but They weren't necessarily all holding hands with each other at the time. They were more like, let's dive deep into this one little idea on decision-making for 10 minutes. So that's kind of how it started. And then once I started doing the podcast for, you know, six to nine months, that's when I realized, oh, this actually does want to be a book, but it had to be this first. But I never would have planned like, I'm going to do a podcast first and then I am going to write a book. Like that's, that was never the plan. When you did realize that the podcast needed to be a book, that all happened really, really quickly. What tipped you from, this is not a book to, oh wait, (laughs) we need to get this out there. I think it was the podcast had listeners. The listeners were talking back to me and I started to realize how it was resonating. So it was like, oh, this is a conversation that people want to have. And people are making life decisions, telling me I'm helping them make life decisions. And I'm like, 
I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm just helping people create space so that they can connect the dots on their own. And it was working. I had a base of readers who had been reading my books for years. And I think the thing that tipped me over into wanting to make this into an accessible form in a written way was I had a lot of readers who would never, ever listen to a podcast ever. I had complete transcripts of the podcast. Every podcast episode is transcribed to where people could read it and access it. But there's still something about having it in one place, in one book. I love the idea of that. And I wasn't ever going to make it a book, but it was thinking of those readers who just don't love the audio format. And I was creating all this content. I mean, tens of thousands of words worth of new content they didn't have access to because they weren't going to probably download a transcript and they're book readers. And I thought, I want this to be a book in the hands of book readers and the listeners. I loved the idea of almost like a, you know, granted a lot of the material in the book we've talked about on the podcast. It's not copied and pasted, you know, podcast straight into a book. It's definitely has an arc and it's appropriate for that form. But I don't re-listen to podcast episodes, even if it was really helpful for me. I mean, I could maybe count twice that I've ever gone back to a podcast episode of someone else's that I listened to twice, but I will reread chapters of books that are meaningful to me. So I thought, well, even a podcast listener who listened to an episode that was meaningful, a book might be a helpful thing, even just for reference for them to have or to gift. All of those things added up made me realize a lot of writers, they write a book and then they create talks based off of their book. I sort of just did the opposite. I had all the talking (laughs) and then I created a written form from the talking form. I think that's so interesting how we were talking earlier about how when you're reading for a grade, you approach it differently in your mind than when you're reading for another purpose. And it's so interesting how the same words can hit the same readers very differently depending on what context they're taking in those words. I script out my episodes. I mean, it's not word for word, but I do have a really robust outline slash script for my episodes. But because I know they're going to be spoken, I write differently than I do for something that's only going to be read. And it's still me and my voice, which is really weird. And it's a weird thing to learn, but it's a different way of approaching the words. And so creating a book from that felt really different because it was spoken first. Where did the title come from? It's such a good one. How did it hit you? So the next right thing is, I mean, clearly I didn't come up with like, I'm going to create the concept of just doing the next right thing. I mean, that's been, you know, that's been around. But I mean, years ago when I was in college, Elizabeth Elliott used to have a radio show called Gateway to Joy that it was like a 15 minute show. And I would listen to it while I waited. I was a commuter student at school and I would have to get there really early to get a parking space. So I would listen to her show. It was almost like a podcast before there were podcasts, like a little (laughs) short 15 minute Elizabeth Elliott show. But she would often quote a poem and the poem was called Do the Next Thing. And as a college student, that was always really meaningful to me because, you know, we were always encouraged, like, create a five-year plan and what are you going to do with your life? And so this concept of just doing the next thing was powerful for me. And it was transformative even then. And then as I've grown older, that's just always been a phrase I've carried with me. And I've heard it said by so many Anne Lamott, Martin Luther King Jr. Mother Teresa has a similar thing that she talks about, Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book. You know, they often talk about this concept of just doing the next thing. It felt like when I, even when I started the podcast, I wanted to talk about decision-making, and the phrase I kept using was the next right thing. So I remember telling my friend Kendra, the lazy genius, I was like, I think I'm just going to call the podcast the next right thing. She's like, yeah, that sounds good. And then it just was. (laughs) So when it came to write the book, you know, it's like, well, we'll just keep it the same. It's, you know, it's familiar. It's what people expect. So that's kind of where it all came from. Emily, when did you begin the podcast? 
August of 2017. So since August 2017, is it fair to say you've been in a heavy-duty decision-making mindset? I think about making decisions all the time. Has that changed the way that you approach the books you're reading? I'm just really wondering if we're going to see that reflected in your favorites or what you really don't want to read right now. It's such a great question, and I haven't thought about it that way. Honestly, Anne, I started school the same month I started the podcast. So much of my reading life has been decided for me based on a syllabus. So now that I'm going to have choice, because school ends this, like, I'm in my last semester right now, it'll be interesting to see how it impacts, like, moving forward. I hope this is something you discuss and write about at length, if if just for me. I'm going to have to now. Emily, you know how this works on What Should I Read Next. You tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we talk about what you may enjoy reading after you graduate from your graduate program. How did you choose favorites, considering the way that your reading life has been atypical for you over this past year and a half? This was really hard. And I hear people do it on the show and I think, oh, they picked their favorites so easily, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they had this inner turmoil as well because which angle do I want to go? Here's here's how I picked my favorites to talk with you about Ann Bogle. I realized that I would like to be turning slowly toward a posture of fiction. I tried to think of recent fiction within the last five years that I've read that I liked so that we could maybe go in that direction because I do want some help thinking about maybe a fiction title, because a lot of my favorite books, honestly, are nonfiction books. And the books I've been reading recently are almost all nonfiction books, but I was like, maybe that's not the direction I'm going to go. Here's the thing. Growing up, my parents were kind of readers, but I didn't really have very strong direction. Like I read a lot of Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club and things that I could get at the library at school that were very easy and had another one right after it. So I didn't read a lot of the classics growing up, only as I've you know gotten older have I done that. And so all that to say, I don't look back and think, oh, this beloved book I read when I was 10 was my favorite book of all time. Some of that has come as I've grown older. But anyway, so picking for me was I thought I'm going to choose some fiction I've read recently that I really loved in hopes that maybe I can find more fiction that I can really love. I actually really like that you do have a nonfiction pick on this list. I see readers get into trouble when they answer these questions aspirationally instead of realistically. And I really like that you're honoring the fact that yeah, you read and legitimately enjoy a ton of nonfiction. I do. I can't wait to hear about your books and to hopefully help set you up for this new chapter where you get to choose what goes in your tote bag. It's so exciting. Emily, tell me about the first book you chose. Okay. The first book I chose is a book by Kate Morton called The House at Riverton. That was my first book of hers that I read. I read it because someone said that if you liked Downton Abbey, you should read this. This will be a great book to read. And they were right. It was sort of a great Gatsby feel. You know, Kate goes back and forth between eras. And this one took place in, I think, the 1920s. And then it kind of fast forwarded to, I don't know, the late 90s, maybe. So I do like that time period of like World War One, Two. I don't understand the concept of reading book flaps or back covers or the last page. Like I will close my eyes during previews of things. If I'm reading a fiction book, it's almost like I don't want to even know the premise sometimes. I want to experience it as it is revealed to me, as the author intended. I appreciate that. I wholeheartedly endorse your idea to skip the flap copy, which is how a lot of readers decide because the author did not write that. That's not what the author necessarily wants you to know. Right. That is really an act of faith though, to pick up a book and dive in. You must really trust your sources that get you to pick up books. You have to. 
But I will tell you, Anne, now I put this on my favorites list, but Kate Morton, I don't love all of her books. I've read almost all of them. And I remember seeing a note from myself that The Lake House, I think, is one of hers, sort of surpassed The House at Riverton as my favorite of hers. But I can't remember if that's true, so I hesitate (laughs) to say it. I also have this really terrible, terrible thing in my brain where I could probably quote you a line from a nonfiction book that I read today, but I will read an entire fiction book and sometimes a week later be like, wait, what was that? What was that about? For some reason, I don't always retain the story or, but I do know like The Distant Hours is another Kate Morton. I did not love that book. I I had to like make myself finish it because I thought, well, surely I'm going to love it at the end. It just was slow. It was a slow read for me. So usually I'll find an author and I love everything that they write. That happens a lot. Well, her last one, The Clockmaker's Daughter, felt like a departure to me. Very different narration. Don't want to talk about the ending. But The Distant Hours did have this decidedly darker gothic feel to it. And it sounds like that wasn't for you. I'm guessing that's what it is. That's not for me. Emily, what did you choose for your second book? My second book almost feels similar to that one. I don't know why, because they're not similar. Last Thanksgiving, I read America's First Daughter by Stephanie Dre and Laura Kamoe. Well, I already love U.S. history. I used to be a sign language interpreter, and one of the classes I had to interpret a couple years in a row, I worked at a public high school for deaf students and interpreting their classes, and I had to interpret a couple years in a row U.S. history class, and I loved it. It was like my favorite class to sign because it was story-driven, but it was familiar because it was United States history. And Anyway, so I'm learning that, oh, this book, it's about Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Patsy, based off of letters, but obviously there's There's a lot of speculation, I guess, into the story, but there's a lot of history too, where you can sort of point to these marks throughout the book, like, oh, that's what was happening in history, but here's an imagination of what might have been happening behind the scenes. And I really loved that. I realized I don't, I haven't read very many books like that, but I just loved the process of reading it. And then it made me want to learn more about the real history that was happening at that time. How did you happen to pick up America's First Daughter? Do you remember? I don't know if I remember, except it was about a month before I was going to New York to see Hamilton for the first time. Oh, mm-hmm. I knew I was going to see Hamilton, and so I was already interested in that period of time. Interesting. Emily, what did you choose for your third favorite? This is truly one of my favorite books. Top 10, top five, maybe. Learning to Walk in the Dark by Barbara Brown Taylor. I had read portions of her book, An Altar in the World, years before, I checked out Learning to Walk in the Dark from the library. And as soon as I read it, as soon as I finished the last page, I think I drove out to Barnes & Noble and bought my own copy because I thought this is a book I have to own. And I think I just loved it because, first of all, Barbara Brown Taylor is a phenomenal writer. She's so genius. I think she's able to write about really complicated, nuanced, layered human experiences in such a simple way that she makes it look so easy. That's how I know as a reader that it's so complicated is because it seems so easy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. But I just love the way that she walks the reader through this idea of we all have these preconceived 
notions that light equals good and dark equals bad. You know, she does lots of great research and goes into caves and talks to like darkness experts. (laughs) And she sort of brings out the beautiful and necessary parts of darkness that we might not often think about, but how darkness can actually be really nurturing to us as humans spiritually and physically and all the things. So, I loved that book. I thought it was so well-written. And also, I think she writes in a way that inspires me as a writer. What do you like about her as a writer? Well, you know, I went to a workshop actually last spring that she taught, and I took voracious notes. I love the way she encouraged us as writers to write ways that we might not normally think of writing about things. So, for example, I think one of the things that she asked us to do, because it was a writing workshop. Mm -hmm. She asked us, you know, what is the color of surrender? Or what does faith smell like? Using all the five senses, she kind of invites me as a writer to look at common things from perspectives that might not be my first or second pick. And I appreciate that challenge. It sounds like you're enjoying being surprised But it's not just that you're being surprised for its own sake, but she's pointing out aspects of reality that had previously been hidden to you. And so when they come into view, it's like, oh. Yes, because I'm always looking for meaning as an Enneagram 4. I think I heard Ian Cron once say that fours on the Enneagram don't just want meaning. We want meanings with an S, like all the meanings, (laughs) you know, and I think that's something in reading where when things have either symbolism or there's a mystery or there's a mystery revealed or something that is nuanced that isn't maybe obvious, but then it's revealed or I intuit it and then I see that I was right. It's so thrilling as a reader, you know. (laughs) Which goes right back to families and secrets. (laughs) Yes, families and secrets. I love it. Emily, tell me about a book that wasn't for you. So I had heard that Isabel Allende was a fantastic, phenomenal writer. She writes in Spanish though, right? You know, some of her recent books haven't originally been written in Spanish. I don't know. I saw her on on a list, you know, and I thought, well, I need to read one of her books. Well, and she does Families and Secrets and Houses really, really well. So I can see why any description of an Isabel Allende book would just scream your name. Well, I read the wrong book. Because I, read, <laughs> I read Ripper. Which, which sounds kind of dangerous, Emily. It sounds dangerous. I thought, I'm going to live on the edge, and I'm going to read a book, maybe a little outside my genre. It's like crime fiction. (laughs) When good girls (laughs) do dangerous things. (laughs) And like the cover, at least one, there's several different covers, but the cover that I read from the library was like the bridge over the water was like on fire. It wasn't, it was like a reflection. It's very evocative. It is. And it's like, okay, this is going to be, you know, it's going to be a mystery. There's a a teenage sleuth involved, you know, who's like the main character. And um, the thing about it was, I mean, it's supposed to be, so this is like the book I hate, right? I hated it only that after I read it, I wished I hadn't. Does that qualify as hate? (laughs) Yes. I think if you finish a book and you either think that was not for me and I wish I could remove the contents from my brain or I want my four to 14 hours back. Yes, I think that's fair. You don't have to use the H word, but I think it's fair. Because I I mean, reading it, it's like, yes, there was story that I turned the pages. I kept going because I have been known to actually put books down, but I tend to not remember those. So this is a book I finished. And after I finished it, I thought, eh, not really for me. And then later I learned, I don't know if it's true or not, but she said in some article or in an interview that she wrote it as a joke because she doesn't like the genre. And she was like, I'm going to play with this genre and the tropes. And 
I don't know if that's true, Anne. I don't want to spread rumors. But I thought, you know, I think I chose the book she wrote outside of her own genre, and maybe I should give her another chance. But then that makes me feel like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. I hear what you're saying, especially as a reader. And I don't think you're alone in this, who tends to feel like if you love one or more of an author's works, then you're probably going to love the rest of them. So I can see how that kind of general default readerly setting would make you not want to rush out and try another one. Right, exactly. It's like, oh, there's so many other books I know I want to read. As a writer, do you find yourself wanting to invent reasons that maybe that book wasn't just for you and others could be? Like maybe her editor was on maternity leave. Maybe they (laughs) rushed it to publication because there was a gap in the production timeline. Totally. Maybe they wanted her to try something new and adventurous. And she was like, this was the result. Don't make me do that again. Right. Yeah. I definitely find myself making lots of excuses <laughs> for books that just aren't for me because I realize it's clearly it's for people because she's an amazing writer. Okay. So right now you're reading or you're not reading. You wish you were reading the third <laughs> Louise Penny book yes. as soon as you get it back from the library. Anything else you're reading right now? Well, I mentioned it briefly before. I started The Clockmaker's Daughter by Kate Morton, read about a third of it, and put it aside, but I've found I'm not compelled to pick it back up. So that's interesting. But I'm currently reading another book I'm reading in the mornings is Life Together by Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read that, but only in German, which I feel like doesn't exactly count because who knows went straight over my head because of translation issues. That is very fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it now. This was back in college. <laughs> Yes, I'm reading that. That is a book for school, but it's definitely one that's been on my list. And it's a short book, but it's been on my list to read. So this is one that I'm grateful to have assigned to me. Even if you are reading it like you're reading for a grade. Even if I am reading like I'm reading for a grade. Emily, what do you want to be different in your reading life? I wish I had a little bit more structure or rhyme and reason to what I'm going to read next, which feels like I'm in the right spot for that question with this podcast, because it's funny. I, you know, I wrote the book on the next right thing and just do the next right thing. But when it comes to reading, sometimes I find myself spinning around the room, unable to settle into my book choice. I want to be more of a grown up about it. Like go to the next one on the list or the next one that feels most life-giving to you. That's okay. You know, something I say a lot on the podcast is just pick what you like and then see how it grows. And I think about that with decision-making. I literally meant that about choosing a plant in your house, like pick the plants that you like and then see how it grows. And I think the same can be true for books, but for some reason it's not translating into my reading life right now. I should probably confess that the past few nights I've taken like four books to bed and Will Uh will go, how long are you planning on staying up? (laughs) But I'm currently vetting summer reading guide titles and I don't know a lot about any of these books. I mean, forget resisting reading the flap copy. There is no flap copy to read. And so I'm telling him, you know, I don't, I'm probably going to read 20 pages of three of these and one of them is going to stick. And it's true that that's, a level of information that's much lower than most readers have. But I do relate to that resistance to just settling in. And there's something too, just about the way that our brains work these days. I think that's something to it too. It's like, I need to train myself to be a reader again, you know, even though right now I'm doing it for school, but even like for joy and for pleasure and for fun, sometimes I'm not always reaching for a book, but I want that to be what I reach for. Yes. And right now in my research for my book that was just due, I'm reading a lot about 
perfectionism. I didn't realize that perfectionism was really hampering me in my reading life until right this moment. Because what I do when I'm ready to choose my next book to read is I look at my bookshelf, my stack of books I could possibly be reading next, and I want to choose the exact perfect book for this moment in my life right now. Right? And how yes. can you choose? When the, I mean, sometimes that happens to you and it's amazing. Right. But I mean, talk about a lot of pressure to put on that poor little book. I do that too. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was doing that. But now that you mentioned that, that's what it is. It's like, I want it to speak to the place. I want it to be relevant to now, but how can you possibly know? Right. Especially when, I mean, having a book surprise you in a way you didn't expect is such a wonderful moment as a reader. And I'm trying to force that out by choosing in advance the one that I know, oh, just perfectionism is right. the enemy of everything. Okay. Well, this is going to be fun. We're going to put books on your reading list. And I kind of want to be bossy and be like, you will read these first, second, and third, but I'm not going to do that to you. I kind of want you to be, but you don't have to. It's fine. But no perfectionism here. (laughs) We're just going to see what floats to the top. You can pick it up and try it and see how it goes. I think it's probably helpful for both of us that you are very self-aware about what you like. So you chose The House at Riverton by Kate Morton, which I have to say, I love you, Kate Morton. Let's have coffee. That is my least favorite Kate Morton book. And I find that it's her debut. People who read that first really enjoy it. People who come back to it after they've read the others tend not to like it as much because her work really matures between book one and book two, but it's evocative. It's a historical mystery. It goes back and forth in time. It's about a difficult decision, Emily. I'm just going to notice that. Uh-huh. But it definitely plays on that theme you said you like, which is houses, families, and secrets. You also chose America's First Daughter because of your, I didn't know this about you, love of American history. We could probably do something with that historical interest. And then Barbara Brown Taylor's Learning to Walk in the Dark, a nonfiction spiritual memoir that you found fascinating and surprising. You didn't love Ripper by Isabel Allende because it wasn't a cozy murder. Murder, yes. Cozy, no. And that is the stickler. (laughs) Okay. And you want more of a plan in your reading life. Ooh, and you're interested in revisiting some classics. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to let my slow processing brain think about that for a second. And I want to start with a book in a category that you didn't specifically mention, but I think you might be open to, and that is a food adjacent memoir. Ooh, I am open. The next right thing is sharing a book birthday with Ruth Reichel's new memoir, Save Me the Plums. Do you know anything about this? I do not. I got to read this early. I'm so excited. It's coming out today, April 2nd. I wasn't sure right off the bat. I did know that I have loved everything Ruth Reichel has written in book form. And I was really intrigued when I found out that this is her memoir of her years at Gourmet Magazine. She became the executive editor after she was the food critic at the New York Times and then retired from that role. I think retirement is not the right word. But when Condé Nast overnight shelved a bunch of print publications is a cost-saving exercise. She showed up one day and found out that she didn't have a job anymore. I read Gourmet Magazine, not regularly, but I was always excited to see the new copy in a doctor's waiting room someplace. And I followed her work over the years. And I thought, do I really want to know about the gourmet years in depth? And the answer was, yes. Yes, I emphatically (laughs) do. I think if you did want to activate the, how do other people make decisions part of your brain? Um, She does tell the story of how this offer landed in her lap and how she thought that would be crazy. I don't want to do that. But how she went through the decision-making process and ended up taking the job. When she came on at Gourmet, she 
completely transformed the magazine. And I just didn't know enough about gourmet before and after to understand how that happened. And I think even for readers who don't really care about the specific kinds of recipes they were sharing in Gourmet Magazine, the way she writes about recognizing a culture needed to change and taking the steps to change it from the inside was really, really interesting. And then throughout, she talks about human resources, emergencies, and controversial articles she came to publish and how she decided to do it. Her tenure at Gourmet happened during a time of enormous change in the magazine industry, going from print to digital. And that was really interesting. But there's just so much here that I didn't know would find fascinating. And she writes it in such a warm voice. I feel like she's cracking open the door and saying, hey, let me tell you about this thing you didn't know you wanted to know about. Here's the scoop. How does that sound? I love, let me tell you about this thing you didn't know you wanted to know about. That's my favorite line you said. But yeah, that sounds fascinating. And you're right. I do love memoir type books. And especially if they're going to walk me through a difficult decision or a transformative decision. That's good. I'm happy to hear it. So that saved me the plums. My Gourmet Memoir by Ruth Reichel, whose name I pronounced wrong for years, but I finally decided that if that's how she says it, then that is how I will say it too. Okay. (laughs) The next ones are harder. I was thinking that as a lover of Kate Morton, you found Louise Penny, which I think is a great thing to read next if you're out of Kate Morton novels and you are also a big fan. I was thinking about another historical author for you like Susan Meissner or Pam Jenoff. They both have brand new World War II novels coming out, but those are on the other side of the pond from you. You mentioned something about reading classics you missed as a kid when you were busy, like I was reading The Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High. And I hear you like I've read books like Heidi as an adult for the first time. Did you read Anna Green Gables? Do you know, I just got it on Audible with um, Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams reading it. Good choice. Okay. This is not 100% American history, but it overlaps and you will hear why. I'm really curious if you've read anything by the author, Sarah McCoy, who's written, if not solely, then predominantly American historical fiction. I've not. Okay. She had a book come out in October. It's called Marilla of Green Gables. And I think this might be a really interesting follow-up to listening to Rachel McAdams read you the original. I also think it's fine to skip Anne of Avonlea and the whole rest of them to move on. And I imagine that maybe some purists are going to throw eggs into my inbox, but <laughs> but I really do think it's okay. She wrote a historical novel about Marilla before Green Gables. And she starts with her as a child. As she gets older, we do know that she, I don't know, Emily, you don't want to know anything. So I won't share any spoilers. Good, good. Yes. But you do get to see in this book how Marilla was spurred to make some major decisions in her life. First, I have to tell you, I was afraid to read it because Alexander McCall Smith said once that one messes with the classics at one's peril. And he knew this because he wrote a Jane Austen project novel that was a contemporary retelling of Emma, which many people are bound to hate categorically because you're messing with a Jane Austen novel. Sarah McCoy does that here with Marilla of Green Gables. What she does is she introduces the abolitionist movement in the United States during the 19th century and its effect on Nova Scotia, where Marilla Cuthbert, fictional character, lived. And she does it in a way that I completely didn't expect. That's not the direction I expected the story to go, but I could go with it because of the way she told it. And I think as someone who really loves American history, that could be promising. Also building on a childhood classic that you didn't read as a child, but you're reading right now. What do you think? 
I think that sounds lovely. While we're talking about history, a book I have on my to-be-read stack right now is called American Princess. It's a novel of first daughter Alice Roosevelt. This is a story that anyone who has young children in their life might be familiar with because about 10 years ago, there was a picture book that came out. It was called What to Do About Alice, How Alice Roosevelt (laughs) Broke the Rules, Charmed the World, and Drove Her Father, Teddy, Crazy. So there's a new book for adults that just came out last month. It's the grown-up version of this story. And biographical fiction is really hot right now when an author is telling lightly fictionalized accounts of a historical character's life. And what that means is they're imagining conversations and specific plot, but they're building the story around real events that actually happened. The critical reviews are good. I haven't yet read this myself or talked to readers whose taste I really know and trust who have read it, but I am noticing that that's out there if you really want to indulge your American history interest with a brand new book. I do have to put in a good word for The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. And the thing about this that continues to surprise me is this is her first novel and it took her forever to get it published because nobody wanted to touch it. But when she finally did, and it was published first in Spanish, and then you will probably, unless you're a Spanish reader and I don't know about it, be reading the American translation. So anyone who loves books in translation, this would be a good one to pick up. But it was an instant bestseller, critically acclaimed, launched her career, but her road to publicate, I mean, it almost didn't happen. It has houses, families, secrets, Emily, but it's not, I don't think it tips so dark that you finish and be like, yes, I would like my 20 hours back. Right. Because it's a big book. It might actually take you that long. Right. Okay. But for the final book, because I'm thinking something lighthearted might be nice. Uh Uh-huh. Always. Have you read I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith? No, I have not read that. Is this one you know or are familiar with? I think it's on my to-read list. Is it really? Is it one of those 40 books? That would make me really happy. Yes, it is. It's number seven. Well, what do you know about it? Nothing. (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) I just know it's number seven, right above Night Circus. Well, I'm going to start with a little fun bit of readerly trivia for you. This is considered the first young adult novel. It was published in the 40s, and I don't know. I don't feel like you really want to read stuff because it's historically significant, Emily. (laughs) Nevertheless, in that sense, it is. But I like it for you because it's old at this point. This book is 80-ish years old, but it still feels really fresh, and it's fun, but it's not Mm. sappy. And it's told through the voice of a 17-year-old girl named Cassandra, and she's such a winning narrator. And she's I almost said blogging. Where did that come from? (laughs) But she's writing about her family. And you said you like houses, families, and secrets. And they live in this literally crumbling old English castle. And she's writing about their eccentricities and daily events, both of the ordinary and extraordinary variety in her diary. And as a writer, I think you might find that really fun, but it's just full of funny and poignant stories. And it's a little bit magical. It has this really warm, effusive tone to it. Writer's block is a thread that you see repeatedly. And there's a very gentle love story in it as well. How does that sound to you? When you said a little bit of magic, a gentle love story, a crumbling English castle, (laughs) a writer, be still my beating heart. I love it all. I'm happy to hear it. Okay. So we put The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende out there. And we talked about Save Me the Plums, the gourmet memoir by Ruth Reichel. We talked about Marilla of Green Gables by Sarah McCoy. And we ended with I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. Of those three titles, what do you think 
you will read next. I'm going to make you choose. I'm not going to do it for you. Oh, you're going to make me choose. Okay. It probably won't be the Isabel one because I need to think about her. Based on your reaction. Okay. I captured the castle. That might be next because it was already on my list, which tells me Mm -hmm. that my past self already thought that was a good idea. Yes. And your present self responds. And my present self is going to respond and say, I think that's my next right thing. Then we're going to do Ruth Reichel, Save Me the Plums, your book, Birthday Buddy. Which I always have found that books that release my my book twins, like Jen Hatmaker and I are book twins. Her For the Love came out on the same day as Simply Tuesday. So I always have a special place in my heart for book twins. So I really feel like the plum book, what's it called again? Save Me the Plums. <laughs> Save Me the Plums. That's going to be next. And then Sarah McCoy. And then you can finish with Isabel Allende. You'll be uh, in the summertime by then. It feels like a good summer novel. That feels really good. I love it. I'm so excited. Well, thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Emily, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 178, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Make sure to check out Emily's podcast, The Next Right Thing, and her new book of the same name, which is out today, April 2nd. Find all the info you need on her website. That's emilypfreeman.com. And that's where you can also sign up for email updates from Emily. Emily's Instagram account is one of my favorites. She's there at emilypfreeman and in the same place at Twitter, emilypfreeman. Next week, I'm chatting with a book lover who's eager to discover the common thread that runs through what she sees as the scattered data points of her literary life so she can gain a clearer understanding of who she is as a reader. Here's a sneak peek. I am just now becoming more assured of myself and hearing my own voice. For years, I looked to others for direction, obediently followed down the path that was given to me. And of course, I'm approaching 40 and that is not how you want to live your life. You know, you have to listen to your own inner knowing and your own inner compass. And this has been across all levels for me in the past few years, spiritual, physical, mental. So I'm hoping to use use this show and you as a resource to kind of get me on the reading path that feels authentic to me and I don't feel so scattered. I just feel eclectic. (laughs) Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. That's whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoyed this podcast and want more books for your TBR, check out my new podcast, One Great Book. You can listen to the first two great books wherever you normally listen to What Should I Read Next? Just search there for our new show, One Great Book. Thanks to the people who make this show happen, What Should I Read Next? is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, Ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.